0: A two-year-old human baby is teething and, you know, gets all the support and you, you say, oh, you know, it's a terrible tooth and it plays up because it's, you know, got the teeth coming and it's got this and it's got that going on. What do we do with our horses? We shove a metal bit in their mouth.
1: Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for conscious horse people everywhere. This is a place where we invite you to think deeply and be conscious of the impact you are having on the world around you especially in regards to your horse. I'm your host, Tracy Malone, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. This land I live on is Waka Waka and Terrible Country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and to pay my respects to their ancestors, past and present. And I'd also like to extend that respect to each and every one of you listening. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Lena Clifford from Animal Biomechanical Solutions. Lena studied veterinary science in her homeland of Germany, doing a doctorate there before coming to Australia to be with her now husband Darryl, who's an extraordinary horse person in his own right. You'll hear in this interview how Lena felt the vet word taught her scientific skills but there were holes to be filled in treating animals in a more confident way, instead of give them a drug and play the odds in some circumstances. She found a teacher and a mentor in traditional Chinese medicine, and her world changed forever. Lena is going to get you thinking, if you haven't already, about why you rug your horse, at what age you might like to think of starting your horse under saddle based on science, how much support foals need once they're born, and lots of really, really interesting topics. This is an insightful conversation, and I'm so glad I could share it with you today. Here is Lena. Lena, thank you so much for joining me on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me, Tracy. It's um, awesome to be here.
1: Can you first tell me a little bit about what it is that you do?
0: So, I'm a vet by trade. I'm qualified in Germany, and um, I fairly quickly worked out that. The conventional veterinary side is not quite enough for what I wanted. And um, I went into the alternative medicine, I think you could call it. So I started out with acupuncture and um, chiropractics, um, body work. So anything from osteopathy, a bit of energy work, uh, neurological releases, fascia work, that sort of stuff. And um, now specializing in... All these things, so just, yeah, all the acupuncture, Chinese herbs, a bit of homeopathy, chiropractic, biomechanics, um, yeah, just looking at the whole horse uh, and
1: see how we can best help and um, get the horse a good quality of life, basically. I'm so excited to hear a bit more about that. It's like you've just told the story of all the things I love. Okay, let's, <laughs> ta- let's go back to the start, though. Did you grow up with horses? Where did your life with horses begin?
0: So I grew up in a little town on the Baltic Sea in the very far north of Germany. And um, we, yeah, it's a little sort of town and um, my grandparents had Shetland ponies. So my grandfather used to have a farm, but he sold it before I was born. But he always you know, had the love for animals, so he had um, dogs and horses. And um, me and my sister, we just grew up riding on the Shetland ponies. And very quickly, we outgrew the Shetland ponies and advanced to um, bigger horses or bigger ponies at um just a normal riding school, pony club sort of type of stuff, um, riding lots of bareback, doing a lot of, you know, just normal riding around in circles in arenas, going for little trial rides, having camps and all that sort of stuff. And um, big surprise, I always wanted my own horse. But uh, my parents never could afford it and never really were that much into it. My mom's a teacher and dad is a computer IT specialist and um they weren't that much into, you know, horses are just a phase, she'll grow out of one day. Yeah. <laughs> that never yeah. happened.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: But um yeah, and no, from very early on I was um always on horseback and riding the horses and at the riding schools. Um they discovered that horses can't throw me off very easily, so I always got to ride the naughty ones, which um probably cost me a lot of confidence when I was young. So, you know, between four and seven, a lot of stuff happened that threw my confidence a lot. And, um, it taught me that you really need to work with the horse and not against the horses. And, you know, the normal way where I'd say old school teaching, you just put the kid on the pony and, you know, make the horse do it. This is what the horse has to do instead of, working with the horse and trying to get in tune with the horse and see what can, what's the horse capable of doing, what's education, what, you know, how can the rider help the horse out, all these sort of things. And very early I learned to just play with the horses a little bit so we can, you know, have a bit more of a team rather than somebody telling the horse what to do. And um, that probably put me... Towards the direction I was, um, I'm heading today, or where where I am today, <laughs> which um, yeah, is very very interesting.
1: Wow! So, and so, when you left school, you chose to go into veterinary science. Did that have anything to do with the influence of horses when you were younger?
0: Oh, look! I always loved animals. Um, I've always I knew I was going to become a vet from from. I can't even remember ever wanting to become anything else. Um it was I just knew that was my calling. It's that's what I need to do. Fantastic. So um yeah, so we always had the horses were always part of my life and we always had dogs and cats and rabbits and I had pet rats at one stage and um you know, just there were always animals around and I was always every practical experience at school I was working at the vets all the vets in town knew me and I was always there doing stuff and bringing strays in and you know collecting everything that was running around not not attended by anybody so um we always had animals in the house and mum and dad fairly quickly realized that you can't really stop me from having them around so you know we accumulated quite a few wow um, yeah, great. And, and, um,
1: what was it about, actually, about being a vet? Was it the fact that you could help these animals or was it just that you could interact with them every day?
0: A um, bit of both. So I get on with animals much better than I get on with humans.
1: I hear that a lot.
0: <laughs> I wanted to um, just, yeah, spend the time with the animals but also um, the medical side really interested Always still interests me, and um, yeah, just helping them out because they give so much to humans. I really enjoy giving something back to them and making sure that they can do the jobs that they do, whether it's just being a pet and being company, or whether they actually have a job like a, you know, therapy horse or a therapy dog or something like that, where they, where they have a, what we would see as a proper job, um, and just help them out and do stuff. That way, so yeah, that was always uh, the aim to try and help and um, be with them all the time.
1: It's a it's a good plan. I like the plan. How far into being a vet did you get before it started to change your mind? Can you tell me about um, how long that took and why you transitioned into complementary therapies as well?
0: Look, um, I've always been interested in, uh, you probably call it uh, a bit of energy, um, witchcraft, these sort of things which are really out there, but I never quite understood what it was all about. So, you know, when you're a teenager, you just play around with a bit of, um, I had books of how to read palm, you know, palm of your hand, reading about what your life story is or having, um, laying cards or that sort of stuff. But nothing serious, just playing around with things a little bit. And um, I come from a very scientific background uh, with my dad being very interested in science. And mum is very sort of scientific, very rational in their thinking and um they never could quite understand where that was coming from and when I went to vet school because I absolutely love science I think science is awesome and can help us a lot so at vet school obviously everything's very scientific and um I always felt like there was a missing link we learn all these things about how the body works or how we think it works or what we can understand how things work but um, very quickly I thought no there's just something that's not quite there because animals do communicate with us in whatever shape or form so why don't we take that into consideration as well and then we had a short course I think eight weeks or so that we could choose to take about acupuncture and I was still at vet school at that stage and um, took that course That was interesting. I didn't get a lot out of it because I think the um, doctor who was teaching it, he didn't understand much about thinking back now. I don't think he understood the system himself. So it's a bit hard to teach something that you don't understand yourself. Mm. But it opened that little door to, you know, there's something else. And I got quite fascinated how the system worked. So then my parents' dog actually got very sick um, having massive anxiety attacks as a 10-year-old really relaxed dog and all of a sudden once you turned the light on at night, she completely lost her plot and freaked out and um, got to the stage where it was really hard to handle and we tried everything from the veterinary point of view and couldn't find a reason for it. So we got an acupuncture vet and this lovely man had... Um, done acupuncture basically all his veterinary career he got taught in Taiwan and um, that would be 40 odd years ago now and he so I asked him questions you know how do you get into this and I was really interested and he um, took me to one of his seminars and I ended up working for him part-time in the beginning I was absolutely fascinated what you could do with with even one needle, so um, I that was so that was after I was finished. I was actually a vet by that stage, working in um, small animal practice because I didn't know a lot about small animals. So I thought I'd learn a little bit about it because there's always a dog to treat or a cat to treat or something. And um, I was also writing my thesis at that stage, so um, I also have a PhD in veterinary science and. Um, my thesis was about thermoregulation in dairy calves. So I worked a lot with newborn calves and um, everybody who knows a little bit about the dairy industry knows that the newborn calves a lot of the time get diarrhoea and really badly and a lot of them die from it. And school medicine-wise there's not a lot you can do apart from IV, antibiotics, a bit of anti-inflammatories, and then you're basically done. If that doesn't work, they're dead. So mm-hmm. we had all the calves dying. And I asked, um, Luter, who was an um, acupuncture vet, if there's anything I could possibly do. And he said to me, I oh, use this point and just put a needle in there five minutes and see what happens. And these calves that were flat on their side with bloody diarrhea dying, and we had done everything possible from the school medicine side of, um, and we just couldn't save them. After three hours of the acupuncture, they were back up and drinking. I was blown away. I thought, there's something in this I need to know. And that got, this got me absolutely hooked. So I was, um, from then on, I, I just was with Luta as much as I possibly could and learning as much as possible about how can we do this. Um, and on the dairy where I was doing my um, thesis work, I started to fill around a bit with cows and acupuncture which is fascinating because cows absolutely love acupuncture. And um, Lotus practice was mainly horses. So um, we did um, lots and lots of uh, very high-level sports horses, so dressage, jumping, you know, in Germany all the big bloods, um and big stables where you have all these, um, yeah, show ponies. Unfortunately, they are but bit, um, yeah poor poor souls sometimes I think
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um but uh, they yeah it's fascinating a lot of them are a lot of the stuff you can't get to with school medicine or you can only use maybe cortisone so there's some things like COPD is quite common in horses in Germany because they're stable so much so that's a It's a bit like asthma in horses, so it's a chronic um, disease where they can't breathe properly. And obviously for a competition horse, that's not very helpful. And um, school medicine-wise, you use cortisone. And there's some other bits and pieces you can try, but cortisone is usually what they do. And if that doesn't work, then you don't have any other options as a normal vet. And we were treating these horses with Chinese herbs and acupuncture, and it was fascinating to see how much you could do and lameness and digestive problems like colics and things, um, eye issues, so uveitis, for example, you can help really well with some Chinese herbs. And there's just so much you can do in the field. It just really broadened my horizon. It was amazing. So, yeah, that started me off on my, my alternative side. <laughs>
1: Wow, so it started really early, which is fantastic. So you were still in that early stage of, of research and you got to put it into your thesis. That's incredible. How is your thesis accepted?
0: Um, yeah, the thesis. So my supervisor, the professor who supervised my thesis, he was very sceptical um, of the acupuncture at the beginning. Now he knows me a bit better. He... um. He doesn't support acupuncture or alternative medicine as such, but he knows that what I can do works. So he's not quite sure how it works or why it works, but he knows it does work.
1: So do you think that's a difference between science brains and other brains? Is it some need to know exactly why it works and that's why they won't accept it? Because it's a really interesting challenge between the two, isn't it? Um.
0: Look, even in science, sometimes we don't understand how exactly things work. So I'm not sure if that's what it is or whether, unfortunately, the alternative medicine side, and this includes everything um, from, you know, chiropractics to energy work, acupuncture, um, all the Emmett Bowen, you know, osteopathy, whatever they say, um, has got a bit of a bad reputation because a lot of people... I find lose their grounding a little bit when they, or they can lose their grounding when they go into this field. So they, they seem a bit off with the fairies all the time and not very, um, a lot of people can't take them serious anymore. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem because look, the Chinese medicine has been around for more than 5,000 years and the Chinese have amazing results and yes they will call they they know about pathogen factors and they will say you've got wind in the system but how do you explain to somebody who only knows school medicine what wind is wind is something a term they used to describe something that they didn't know about viruses or bacteria or you know these sort of things but they did know about the symptoms so they gave it a name that they could understand and um Yeah, that's just the way I think sometimes when people either don't know enough or they don't understand how, um, when to use the school medicine. So I'm not against school medicine or think, you know, this is something you should completely disregard and not use at all. I think there's a time and place for everything and having the veterinary background and the knowledge with all the alternative side of things I will send clients off and go, you know, I think you need x-rays for this or just get some blood done or this sort of stuff because sometimes you just need to know is there something else that's going on in the animal and if we work together, I think it would be, yeah, just great, much better outcomes instead of always trying to work against each other okay. and the vet always says, oh, you know, hmm, alternatives, I'm not sure if that works at all and the people who do the alternative medicine go, oh, no, don't go to the vet, say, you know, they don't know what they're doing anyway. So it's always this fight Hmm. between the two of them, and I think it would be much better if you actually work together and and, um, combine your knowledge because there's just so much knowledge up there, and if we all work together, we just have this amazing, amazing knowledge to, um, yeah, help. The yeah,
1: and that's the key, yeah. isn't it? You think about why all of these modalities and all of these people, same as you, started in the field. Everyone has the same goal. Um, and yeah. it's funny that people uh, don't, uh, accept other things. Um, in my area, vets are even a little bit, um, touchy about being barefoot. Um, we're quite, yeah. coming that far. It's, it's like really, we're still there. It's, it's quite amazing, but luckily we've got some amazing, um, equiompidaya therapists around here that have um, proven themselves over time with vets so we're slowly 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 getting there but it's so great that um that you were able to see this at such an early stage how did you how long have you been in Australia and how did you come here and first of all did you work with horses in Germany then how did you transition to a large animal vet
0: Um, So I was always interested in going into large animals. Um, I, in the early stages, thought more about cattle because I love cows, no doubt about that, but um, the owners are a bit easier to work with. (laughs) That was the main reason because a lot of the time horse people can be uh, difficult to work with and they have not the best reputation um, because they seem to be very happy to sue vets very quickly if something goes wrong. So I sort of stayed clear of that during my veterinary education. So um, while I was studying, I thought, nah, maybe I'll do more cows. But um, I always, my love love was always with horses. That was for sure. I was always, you know, always around horses, always riding Um when I had my first horse in Germany it was always yeah this is what I really want to do so once I while I was still doing my thesis once I started working with Lotto with the acupuncture that was it I was sold I was doing horses and I was doing acupuncture that was um amazing so uh yeah I think that's how it started and then um I worked so 2011. I stopped the school medicine alt- um, altogether, and started working purely acu- so Chinese medicine. So that's acupuncture, um, Chinese herbs. It's also diet. The Chinese have a big field of diet and how you, what you can use in certain circumstances to help the body to cope better. And, and then, did you um, learn
1: Chinese medicine? for humans or did you learn it for horses or is it how did you learn the translation across to the horses
0: um, it's so the vet i was very lucky you know there are a lot of acupuncture courses for vets up there that you can you know it's a i don't know eight week course or three month course or six month course or whatever's out that two year course and um Lothar who teaches the vets in germany he being a vet himself and doing the acupuncture, he's one of the teaching vets um, for veterinary acupuncture in Germany. He took me on on and I just worked for him and learned the acupuncture, both the theory and the practical, just in our everyday work.
1: Fantastic. So you initially learnt it all for animals because you had that great teacher.
0: Yes, exactly. But the thing is the difference between the veterinary acupuncture and the human acupuncture is really not that big. Mm. or the meridian, you know, most of the points that are the same. There are some traditional acupuncture points for dogs and horses um, or pigs or whatever um, animal you look at that are traditional only for that
1: animal. And how but, about nutrition? Uh, Does that translate as well?
0: Well, nutrition, the nutrition side is actually um, – Most of it is actually human nutrition and you translate that to the animals because there's much more understanding in humans or it's much more used also in humans than it is in animals because um, animal nutrition is a bit tricky. You probably know that, you know, everybody has this belief what they should feed and why they should feed it and how much they should feed and – In that field, there hasn't been a lot of research from the um, veterinary acupuncture side of things or veterinary Chinese medicine. And in humans, there's a lot more knowledge there. So you use that knowledge and translate it to the animals.
1: Fantastic. What brought you to Australia?
0: Uh, My husband. (laughs) Ah. I ended up... um, that was in two thousand and eight, in my final year of vet um, veterinary studies, I came to Australia to get a bit of practical experience just overseas and see what's up here. And I was very lucky. I ended up with Dr. Rowan Kilmartin from Animal Options in On the Go Coast, and he's right into the alternatives as well. And um, he introduced me to. He says, "If you want to know anything about horses' feet, you need to talk talk to Daryl Clifford." And I thought, being an arrogant vet student, <laughs> I thought, "Oh God, what can a farrier teach me?"
1: Well, and um, first of all, let's I, ho- let's hold there for a second. How much did yeah? you know about hooves before you met Daryl? How much we um, through Chinese medicine and vets?
0: So I thought, being a you know. my final years of veterinary stuff and everything I thought I knew a bit um they were very very quickly taught me or showed me that I knew nothing Mm. and um,
1: yeah I really interesting I've had some hoof issues with one of my horses and um she basically cut down into a coronet band and got herself tangled and and we had to get eight stitches and the difference between what the vet said the the solution was and the difference between the trimmer said it was and and not just a trimmer an equine podiatrist. they were two opposing and I had to stand there and make the best decision for my horse and I I knew because of the case studies that the equine podiatrist had it's like I have a lot of respect for the vet and I have a lot of gratitude for everything the vet's been able to supply and now I need to hand it over to the literal hoof specialist because that's what they do it's just that one part of the horse that they know so much about.
0: Yeah, and vets unfortunately um, don't get taught a lot, and a lot of the time they because it's a fairly hard job to trim and shoe horses. And um, being around horses all my life, I thought I knew something, but it was an absolute jaw dropper when I saw Daryl trim the first horse. I could not believe. I have never even to, to up till today I have never seen anything like it. I have never seen anybody, and this is not just because he's my husband and he's the love of my life, but it's just because the way the horses react to the way they're trimmed, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And it goes so far beyond hoof care. It's um, a very holistic approach as well. So he takes into account the whole musculoskeletal system of the horse and also the neurological system of the horse and that just blew my mind and it was so in 2008 after I returned home I had my own horse and um a little tiny thousand kilo heavy draft horse (laughs) and And um easy to trim (laughs) yes easy to trim and um (laughs) <laughs> he was uh, the most gorgeous horse but obviously you know being very heavy he did have some foot issues and I sent Daryl some photos and asked him how to trim and Daryl said oh this is what you do and we had very very loose sort of email contact uh, just through the horse and, mucked around. and when I came back in 2012 to Australia I um Yeah, we basically caught up and hit it off straight away. It was amazing. And then um, in 2013, to answer your question, I um, moved to Australia. So I've been here about five years now.
1: How do you like Australia?
0: I'm loving it. I've been to Australia for the first time in 2003 and um, been back uh, 2005, 2008, 2012 and then moved here 2013 so I absolutely love it.
1: Fantastic.
0: The only little problem that is here is that um, the Australian government doesn't recognise my veterinary qualifications. i <sighs> uh, got to just, uh, some, you know, whatever they, they work themselves out and um, yes I could redo the final year exams but it's a so-called border exam, but um, because I gave up the school medicine in 2011 anyway, because I think you, if you want to specialise in something, be good at something, you need to concentrate on that and you can't be good at everything. So I just think they can't take away my knowledge and I don't need the qualification to do what I do anyway. So I leave it at that. It's sometimes a little bit annoying, but... Um, Most of the time it doesn't vary me that much. I know I've got the, you know, most vets here don't have a PhD in veterinary science and you can say, you know, I've, I've done the work, I've done everything, I don't need to do another exam.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about a horse that comes to mind that you've been able to treat and where it started, what the issues were and what you were able to help it achieve and where it is now?
0: um oh well, there are so many <laughs>
1: i know i know there'd be one every every other day if not every day so um what's the one that pops into your mind and that's most prominent that what's wants to be spoken about today
0: um i think the most interesting ones or the most fun ones too are the foals so um the last fowl I treated was a three-day-old little thoroughbred cult. And um, foals are unfortunately still very neglected when it comes to treatments. Um, not so much from the veterinary point of view, but from both the orthopedic balance, so hoof care, and also chiropractic and um, general body work kind of view. And we try and work with breeders to get into the foals as early as possible to help them actually grow up balanced because it's not very common knowledge how high the percentage actually is in horses or in foals that have birth trauma. So it's a lot of um, horses when they are born they either break ribs or they, you know, one leg gets presented um, more forward than the other one and they start to have shoulder issues or their pelvis gets um, pulled out of alignment because that's usually the widest part of the horse. So when you look at, um, when they come out of the mare, the shoulders get stuck and then the pelvis gets stuck and through the contractions they can break ribs and stuff. So if you don't address these issues and sometimes they're not very obvious other times it can be very obvious Um, then the horse is already having to compensate for that basically for the rest of its life and that specific little colt I treated the other day he was he was so funny (laughs) he um, got presented with one leg for the fourth and the other one And because of that, his shoulders were right out of alignment and he was knuckling over a little bit in the carpal joint. And you see that a lot, um, the carpal, this knee, you talk about the front leg, Mm -hmm. and if they can't stand up straight and they can't lock their knee, they sort of are a little bit bendy in their legs. Um, A lot of the time it's because they're stuck in their shoulders. So if you release the top, that um, comes good very quickly. And um, he was also very tight through his back end. And um, files, because they haven't had much handling, obviously, you start to work on them and it's very, very light work. So you don't do any harsh adjustments. You just do very light, sort of, probably more neurological releases. And every time something moved, so um, he started falling asleep and going, oh, this is really nice. And then he had to go and buck and, you know, jump around and release everything and then you could treat a little bit more and then he'd back again and you could treat a little more. It was very cute. He was um, very chatty. It was very, a lot of expressions. um, Yeah, you could see the way everything was moving in his body and how he responded to it. And um, a lot of the time these foals will have surgery because they can't stand up correctly. So they will either cut the check ligament Or they will try um, corrective shoeing on these foals to try and straighten their legs up, but a lot of the time the issue is not in the foot or the leg itself, but it's coming from further up. And once you release that, the foals can stand up correctly and can actually then grow correctly from there. So um, yeah, that's
1: that's probably it's huge. It's it's
0: huge, yeah, and It's, it's not huge.
1: very. That's the that's, yet. Yeah, that, yeah I hadn't I hadn't actually considered that before. But um, having given birth myself, I'm like yeah, of course. When we brought Oliver home from the hospital, we went um, to the chiropractor on that day, and he now has cranio osteopathy. But it was like, yeah. th- of course, they're coming out of a small space, and and they're um, yeah yeah there's just because it's natural and wonderful and amazing it doesn't mean there's not a little bit of trauma that happens on the way through and a little bit of adjustment that's needed
0: and see people always say oh but wild horses don't get any care
1: they either don't. so they
0: can well either they die but we also you know don't forget that wild horses they will do i don't know 30ks or something a day just walking mm. and they No rider that's putting any pressure on them and want to can't around for half an hour or ask them to do Piaf and Passage and um, all these moves or go into a cross-country competition, these horses don't have to move unless they get chased. They have to walk and graze very slowly during the whole day. So we see that a lot of young horses that grow up to become a, what, two, three, four, five-year-old Um, and that are coping well in the paddock as soon as you put pressure on them, they will go lame. Mm. And then they go, oh, you know, that just whatever happened. Oh, it's just bad luck. But a lot of these issues you can address when they are very little and actually help these horses not to go lame and to grow up to become whatever they are meant to become um, in a healthy way and, and do it with correct body and without any pain or injuries because pain in horses uh, being a flight animal, horses don't show pain. Mm. And I hear a lot that people say, oh, horses are weak animals because they always go lame. I would strongly disagree. I think horses are very, very strong animals. By the time we see a lameness, though, uh, we already have physical damage a lot of the time. And the horse has been hiding this pain sometimes for years because who gets eaten first out in the wild is one that shows weakness. So you try and not show weakness for as so long as possible until in the very, you know, until things go so wrong that they can't hide it anymore. So I think we need to get better at picking pain earlier to prevent physical damage we see nowadays with anything from kissing spines and um, A lot of foot issues are related to um, upper body issues. So if the horse holds itself wrong on top, it'll push the feet out of alignment and the hoof capsule will move into a crooked shape and that puts pressure on navicular or deep flexor or, um, you know, you've got osteitis, navicular disease, you've got tendon issues, all these things, um, scolven, the hocks, um, fetlock um, arthritis and these things a lot of the times... I think, are coming from just pain that's been compensated for and um, not picked up on. So how cool would it be if we can pick these things before we actually do damage and help the horses out? Um, and that's one of my passion. I know uh, when we talked at the um, Samford Horse Care Expo about the sore horses, uh, that was a very short talk, half an hour. It's not much. You, you know, you just point out things But a lot of people came up after and said, wow, I never looked at it that way. Yes, I think we've got an issue. And everybody's telling me, you know, the horse is not sore, but I always feel like there's something going wrong. And now you said that we've got all these signs and you can see that. It's just a matter of
1: um, learning what to look for. And that's the key, isn't it? You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. So it's so much about education which is, it's great that you're saying that because I was thinking before that um, it's wonderful to hear about foals and how much, you know, we really need to understand when we get a young horse. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. I'll ask you that question too in a moment about when you think they should be started. Um, but also, you know, not a lot of us are breeders. Um, so if we're, because a lot of us, you know, can rescue horses or buy horses and things like that. We all get a vet check when you buy a horse. Well, most people do. It's a thing, you know, you get your vet check. What is it that we should be looking for when we buy a horse as well? And what about the horses we've already got? What are the things we need to think about? Like you said before, it starts from the top and goes down. What do we need to know? Because this goes worldwide. So not everyone can get you around to their house.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so um the So it's... Um, not only from the top going down, but also from the, from the bottom going up. So if you have a foot issue, you might have an upper body issue. If you have an upper body issue, you might have a foot issue. So it's sometimes the chicken or the egg, which was there first. But some of the things to look for in your horse is um, any changes in your feet. So flares, cracks, silly toe, wall separation, bruising, um, waves in your coronet band, um, a different shape of feet so if you have um, one thing that's very common is the so-called high heel low heel syndrome so one foot is more upright and more clubby and the other foot is flatter um, these are all signs that the horse is compensating and overloading the feet in one way or the other and it might be a foot issue or it might be coming from the upper body and um, in the upper body itself so everything that you look for is asymmetries in the muscles stand behind your horse and look over the top and see if your shoulders are um, symmetric if you have a high heel low heel syndrome in your horse which one horse one foot is more clubby, the other foot is more flat I can guarantee you your shoulders are not going to be even because your horse is getting off that clubby upright foot onto the flatter foot in most cases to um, yeah there's something going on in that leg with a clavier foot that's actually causing the horse to get off it, overloading the other side. So the side with the flatter foot will have the bigger, bulgier shoulder. And what that does is it makes the whole rib cage rotate. It makes your saddle fit difficult. It makes your saddle slip. So everything from you always feel like you're riding longer in one leg or your horse is always pushing you over to one side is a sign that your horse is not balanced unless the saddle fit is not correct. So we'll just, we'll just assume that the saddle is fitted correctly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So um, any, when you stand in front of your horse and you look at your horse, any asymmetry in your head, especially around your TMJ, um, can show you that there's something going wrong. If you have a horse that um, has a big overdeveloped neck on the bottom so around the um, cervicals, around the bones in the neck and starting to waste away on the top and you feel like you're riding it correctly and you're feeding it correctly and everything is right but it seems to start to waste away on the in the top line just in the neck. That's usually a sign that things are going wrong. You get start to get a dip in front of the wither that is definitely a sign that things are starting to go wrong. Um, if you start to get a big wither pocket, that is something that older horses can get but if a younger horse all of a sudden starts to develop it, it's a sign that it starts to hold wrong and then when your spine, when you just have your back and it should be nice and smooth going all the way down to the hips, if you have lumps and bumps in your spine, you just run your hand over and it's lumpy and not nice and smooth, that's not correct but um, if your horse always stands in a certain position, so we'll always put, say, the left foot forward for grazing and hardly ever take the right foot forward for grazing, that is a big red flag. Or it always wants to stand. Um, we've had horses that are so bad through their shoulder girdle, they can't graze um, by putting the head on just standing um, up. They will have to go over to their knees or onto their blocks to actually get the head to the ground and um eat grass that's not okay <laughs> there's wow. something going wrong of course um if you have problems so you know po- poverty lines over the back of the hamstrings mm-hmm. that a lot of the time is too much tension overloading at the back end or you have a change in behavior so a lot of the horses we see or i see on an everyday basis is um, the complaint would be, oh, he started bucking on the saddle. He's never done that before. Mm. Horses don't just start bucking. They always have a reason for it. So instead of what I hear a lot is, oh, you know, the trainer said right him through it because he's just being naughty or, um, you know, just he's just playing up. He's just being a bit flighty at the moment, all these things. There's always a reason for it because horses don't want to use a lot of energy. They always try and um, please and they always try and be the best they can and and do what you're asking without doing a lot of high-energy behaviours. So anything, um, bucking, bolting, rearing, um, all these things are high-energy behaviours that need a reason to be shown horses don't just do that because they, you know, they woke up in the morning and said, Oh, I'm just going to buck my ride off today. They don't do that. Um, So the horses we see, it could be bad training, but if you, you know, you've, you've had the horse for five years and all of a sudden it starts to change behavior. Something is not right. And 99% of the time it's actually pain when we see these behavior changes. So um, any kicking, biting, girthiness being narky with anything either on top so when you're riding or when you're on the ground always look for pain give the horse the benefit of the doubt there might be some pain there somewhere and um, a really interesting one too is a change in coat color so if your horse all of a sudden looks washed out or you have a bay or a chestnut and all of a sudden you get white spots on the horse that can be a sign that you have um, pain in the horse because we know that these white spots will go away when we treat the horses and the pain goes away. Wow. So there's a lot of different little signs that you can look for. The other thing is fascia lines. So if you have deep lines all of a sudden coming usually around the shoulder or around the flank area, um, is also a big sign that something's overworked in that area and you have to try and work out where it's coming from. And um, usually it's coming, so if one area gets overloaded more than the other, it um, happens because of, yeah, pain usually. The horse is getting off one leg or it's getting off the shoulder, or it's getting, you know, the back is sore, so it doesn't really want to move much anymore or the neck gets sore. You know, it's it's sore in the jaw or whatever you know can go wrong and um, all these things will show up somewhere else in the body because it's a whole horse if you have foot pain eventually you'll start to have back pain if you keep getting off your foot because you'll pull your back crooked and the same happens in horses
1: yeah so there's so much great information in there and it's also very clear that Um, we can't just have one, we can't just have a hoof trimmer or a body worker. We really need to be thinking about the whole horse all the time and and it's up to us as horse owners to um, support collaboration through all these workers as well. Have your hoof trimmer talking to your body worker or get a body worker that's a hoof trimmer. Um, Or really do our research into people and start collaborating because there's so much that we need to take responsibility for with our horses.
0: Definitely, definitely. No, I agree. I think and the more we work together, the better the outcome for the horses. And I yeah. think in the end, that's what it's all about, a better quality of life for the horses.
1: Yeah, we're all striving to the same goal. What age do you believe horses should be started under saddle from everything that you know?
0: Um, that's a... Uh, that's a um, yeah, an interesting one. So, from a scientific point of view, and I'm just going to go with the science here for a little moment. Mm-hmm. The growth plates in the horse in the spinal column, so the vertebra of the spine, will close at about seven or eight in some horses, mm-hmm. and that's the part we sit on. Hmm. So when we think about that, that's um, for me one of the first things where I go, okay, maybe we shouldn't start horses as early as they started nowadays. I don't believe in starting horses as two-year-olds or younger. I think that is um, not good for their bodies. It's not good for their minds. It's just they're babies. They shouldn't, you know, a two-year-old – human baby is teething and you know gets all the support and you you say oh you know it's a terrible tooth and it plays up because it's you know got the teeth coming and it's got this and it's got that going on what do we do with our horses we shove a metal bit in their mouth great um they are teething as well at the time and they have inflamed gums and they have all the issues um apart from still growing so their growth plates um, will close from the bottom up so the lower legs will start to close first and then it'll slowly go up towards the body. And um, as I said, the last ones that close in some breeds, like big warm bloods and stuff, they will close at about seven. Um, So for me, there's also a bit of a difference. Um, If you start a young horse, so if you say you have a four or five-year-old young horse and you want to start riding it, you've done a bit of groundwork with it and you just want to back it, um, I don't have any problems with that. I think the biggest damage we do is if we start to put a lot of work into them. So, all the, well, we know about the racehorses, the futurity horses, um, all these horses that are started very, very early will, as a six, seven, eight year old, show up a lot of issues and um, break down really quickly. So, I think. For me, it's an animal welfare issue. We, we break the horses before they've even fully grown. And the foot in the horse doesn't mature until the horse is five. And um, we so we have a structure that the horse stands on. So we might have a 500-kilo horse standing on a hoof. That's not completely matured yet. So I believe if you start them as four or five-year-olds and do very light work, you know, just play around with them, back them a bit, do a bit. And bush them again get them in the next year do a bit more work you know play around and by the time there might be six or seven where the growth plates actually are finished the horse is both mentally mature enough and physically mature enough to start doing harder work and um, that's where I believe we should go and that's a way I know in the German military in the 1800s or whenever they were still using horses the way they looked at horses they said a seven or an eight-year-old horse was still considered a young horse these horses were still working as schoolmasters teaching young riders at 24 nowadays it's really hard to get a schoolmaster that's sound in this
1: 15 and that was my next uh, question because I can see it logically in my head it tells me Most horses, people expect horses to live to about 20. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. I think they should be living to double that. So if we take everything you're saying into account, we will get longevity with our horses and riding, you believe. Yes,
0: yeah. So I think I believe that um, even when I was just in my little riding school, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, we still had horses at the riding school doing their work at 26, just pottering around with the beginners, you know, doing a bit of walking and trotting. But they could cope. They could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the horses now, as you said, oh, if it gets to 20, everybody's happy. And they go, well, I want to retire my horse when it's 30, yeah. <laughs> you know, because I because I want to retire the horse or because I, I think, you know, you should ride an old horse like that but because the horse is still capable of doing a little bit of work and happy doing a little bit of work. And, um, yeah, we just, we're too much in a hurry. Everybody's too much in a hurry. It's the same with treatments. Um, you get a call and say, oh, the horse had the lameness issue for probably about on and off for two years, but I want you to fix it in two treatments. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen that's but you laugh but that's the expect, expectations that wow. we get on an everyday basis.
1: Oh, and how do you do it?
0: Well, it's education again trying to get the people to understand that something that's been there for a long time doesn't just go away in a very short time.
1: Mm. The
0: horse might feel better and it might look better, but it doesn't mean that it's completely healthy and happy. So, you know all these Everybody wants to, oh, if I can't ride my horse for two days, oh, I I have um, withdrawal symptoms. And you go, well, how about you just go and hang out with your horse and just, you know, give a bit of a brush or go out and let it graze somewhere. That seems to be a bit lost nowadays. People don't want to just hang with their horses anymore. They throw the saddle on right around for half an hour, take the saddle off, off they go. You know, it's um, and the horse goes, geez, what just hit me then?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. and you're very lucky you're on this podcast because you're, you'll be episode number 31 or 32, and of all the people I've interviewed, the first thing they say to do with your horses is hang out. Yeah. Be a part of the herd. So it's um, there is a there is a movement happening where people just want to hang out with their horses. They want to become a part of the herd, and connection is more important than the work. And nobody can get the. Everyone's starting to understand in this field that we're in right now, and my listeners that I know are on this journey with us is that the connection comes first, and then you get the best out of your horse. And if they're if you're not listening and you're and you're not getting the connection, then it's it's not happening. So there is a movement. I promise you, we are out there.
0: <laughs> I know that. I know that, and that's uh, um, the motivation. It's actually fascinating to see the gap sometimes between people who want to do that and trying to educate themselves and make sure the horse is always up to date with feet and teeth and you know it's fed correctly and they um one of the most amazing things i must say i encountered here in australia that i just could not believe is the amount of rugs people put on their horses i come from a very very cold climate in winter we have minus 15 degrees sometimes i have in my whole life never seen so many rugs on horses
1: yeah yeah i'm i'm with you my guys don't get rugged i think one of mine would probably like to be rugged because he came off the track, a standard bred off the track. And I think he was always rugged. So I think he would like it from a safety perspective. But I'm like, mate, I'd have to wash. You. I've washed him three times already just to try and get the blanket he puts on himself off every winter and then sweats his way through summer. So, um, so I said, while well, you're with me, mate, you're just going to have to grow your own blanket like that every, every winter and, and we'll deal with it because I can't logically. I can't see it logically why I would need to rug them.
0: Well, even if you have a competition horse and you want to keep the coat short a little bit, um, coat length is more determined by uh, the length of the daylight. So you will have a more effective way of reducing coat length is actually to put lights in your stables that are on for longer so the horse. Horse spraying gets t- um, tricked in longer daylight, so it won't grow as much hair. And yes, then you will have to rug them because they don't have so much coat. But one nice rug might be enough. You might you don't need three or four. Um, it's and some old horses, if they get cold because you know they're old and it's like old people, they get yeah, cold just easier. The extra support. Yep.
1: exactly. But um, and that's, that's logical. That's logical.
0: Yeah. But sometimes, I mean, you know, you see them with three or four rugs on, and it's we're in Queensland, for Christ's
1: sake. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are. And anyone in the world who doesn't know Queensland, it is beautiful one day and perfect the next. We are hot. Yep. Our cold days, are, we're lucky to drop below 20 degrees Celsius. Um, yeah, we, thing, we don't so have cold weather. If, if,
0: exactly. And um, yeah, we might get cold during the nights. So, um, You might get a bit of frost on the ground, but you need to take the rugs then off during the day because otherwise the horses are just going to sweat the whole day just because they've got all these rugs on and that's not fair on them.
1: Yeah. And it's not
0: healthy either.
1: Yeah, yeah. We had a hailstorm come through here only about a week ago and I have a shelter for my horses and it does have a tin roof and they were all happily in there. But then the standard bread decided that he was going to take the charge and push the girls out. So my two mares were out in the middle of the hail. And I tell you, if I could have walked out there and kept myself safe and covered them, I would have. But anyway, the whole point is they basically had a bucket of ice water thrown over them. So the moment the hail stopped, I went out there and they were just shivering. They were shaking and shivering because they were so incredibly cold. And I chose to, I popped them in the shelter and I gave them a big bucket feed. And within five, 10 minutes, I towed them down. They were perfectly fine. So um even in even in those kind of extreme circumstances there are other ways. If it's colder at night, I put more feet out. It's um there are other ways to help and support your horses than um than having to rug and and when I did the research on rugging I, I realized that it was something that I didn't need to do to support them. I could support them in other ways. That were easier for them and me.
0: I I, I agree. Yes, uh, wholeheartedly. I think there's um, most horses don't need rugs. Yes, some do, but um, most horses don't. And um, they will, it's much more natural. They can thermoregulate in much more effective ways um, without the rugs because they can stand the hair out, they can lay them down. You know, the sweating will, the sweat will evaporate a lot quicker if you don't have the rugs and all these sort of things play as they're major factors for the horse to be able to cope with the temperatures.
1: Mm, yeah that it's like us your body has a system uh, and and it it works effectively when it's not tampered with if you just let your body do what it needs to do then it can generally bring itself back it's when we start messing with that and thinking we know more than the extraordinary intelligence system that we've been given and that the horses have been given um that we usually come to come to have a few problems in my opinion
0: well as um as I always tell my clients, when they ask these questions, um, especially sometimes um, the discussions with uh, feet is usually the one of the bigger problems, um, you know, putting shoes and putting orthopedic shoes on, all these sort of things. And you say, okay, so you reckon that you or your, you know, your trimmer or your farrier or somebody else knows better than nature, Um the evolution took how many million years to get to this stage and, you know, it hasn't changed for quite a while. I think it's done a pretty good job. How about we leave it that way <laughs> and um, we just work with the system and try and keep the system balanced. And as everything, if the system goes out of whack, um, we might need to interfere. But there are other ways to help the system out than, you know, yeah, putting 20 blankets on the horse and Um, doing all these fancy things to them. There's, uh, yeah, just try and work a bit more with nature, not always against nature. I think that's one of the things that really, the more I do, the more I realise that it's... Horses are pretty perfect. We don't need to change them around a lot. They're doing pretty well. And if we look after them and give them time out and actually... One of the big things, tours I find, they need exercise but not as much from us. They need exercise, they need big big paddocks and they need company. So they need other horses that they can live with and not be all separated in little individual stables and you know, sit there in little paddocks where they can't graze and it's only sand. So if you have the option to have them out there and do what horses do 23 hours a day and then you might ride them for an hour a day, It's not going to be that bad for them if um, they can compensate for it in another way. But if they're all locked up all the time, they can't compensate for what you're asking and then you run into trouble a lot faster than if you just let them do their thing.
1: Yeah, and again, that's about education. I have always felt that... um, and, and it must be tricky with insurance and things like that. And it's just about horse people becoming more aware and educating themselves. And when they're looking at adjustment, it's allowed to be on those beautiful big adjustment properties. They can run in a herd and it's so much better for their horses, like you just said, in so many ways. They don't have to have their horse in one little pen by themselves um, with a stable block to to give the best to their horse. They actually need, and again, it's about education. We really need to educate ourselves as horse owners and start understanding how much of the issues our horses are having have to do with us and how much of the issues the horses are having um, because of something that's happening within them. But um the impact that we have on our horses is extraordinary. And um that's a lot of what this podcast is about as well, is educating ourselves as horse owners is Is what we're doing putting the horse first or is it putting our own beliefs and thoughts on the horse?
0: I love the thing, yeah. And there's so much um, peer pressure too in the horse community that if somebody believes in something, they might not have any – background whatsoever they might have just been you know had horses for a few years and they go oh, this is what I've always done this is what you need to do you can't do it any other way and just because they are good at communicate things and very good talkers um, people just believe them and they just follow that belief and um, it might be anybody who um, has any influence on the on the horse owner And the horse owner just goes with it because everybody else says to do so without actually questioning it and just doing a little bit of research. Because let's face it, in the age of the internet, there's really no excuse not to do any research. And if it doesn't quite feel right and doesn't sit right with you, and you sort of always a bit, whatever it is, whether it's the training methods they're using, whether it's the way you're feeding your horses or the way your horses are kept or Rugged or shod or trimmed or God knows what. If there's anything that doesn't quite feel right, question it. Try and find other information. Get a second opinion, third opinions. See if there's something that feels better for you, that sits better. Because in the end, it's a horse owner that makes a decision for the horse. And you always try and make the best decision, obviously, that what you can But there's so much information They just go and use it. I mean, I'm not a big fan of just Dr. Google and see everything, you know, but it's helpful sometimes to get an idea whether what you've been told is actually true or not and be critical about the information you get. But a lot of the time you can tell whether it's a legit source or whether it's just somebody
1: randomly writing down something and you should be able to that's part of research is don't go to one web page and read one thing you've got to research it on a few different ones and and you'll be able to feel your way through it that is the great part about the internet
0: and the good thing too um google scholar it's um got all the articles so that it's all research and um if you want to do some, you know, find out about something. There's probably been some research done. You can see what the scientific community actually thinks about it and how they put it out and what their studies have been. I know reading scientific articles is sometimes pretty boring, but if you just read the conclusion and go, okay, what have they actually done and what's their conclusion? They have done studies on rugging. They have done studies on changes in feet. So, um, they have done studies on, um, you know, stabling horses versus movement in horses, you know, getting mountain paddocks or what behave, what it does to behaviours when you um, have them in a paddock on their own versus having them with company and all these sort of things. So you can do the research and it, that's um, valid research that's out, that's out there. So, yeah, go and
1: do it. Here, here, Absolutely go and do it. I love it. Okay. Okay. Can you tell us what your website is? How can we read up a bit more about yourself?
0: Um, so we have our website is called biomechanicalsolutions.com.au.
1: And I will and, put links in uh, the show notes and we will be able to find them. But can we also find you on social media?
0: Yes, so we are on Facebook. Um, you can either find me personally as Lena Clifford on Facebook or um, the website is Animal Biomechanical Solutions. That's the company we work under, um, me and my husband. So, yeah, it's all about, you'll find, you know, you'll find some videos there about um, trimming or treating. You'll find, um, you can get in contact um, to us via either Messenger Facebook. Um, just uh, the website also provides you with an email address, um, there are phone numbers there, so yeah, that's that's
1: the way to go. Are people able to reach you around the world? You live here in Queensland, but can people access you around the world? Yes, so we
0: actually um, do a lot of lecturing overseas and um, try. So we, um, for example, have had a couple of lectures at the um, American Veterinary Chiropractic Association's annual conference. So we've been in America, we lecture on a regular basis in Germany and um, both privately to um, chiropractors, vets, farriers, but also to veterinary colleges, um, universities and all these sort of things. So there's more and more interest in these sort of things now and if there's any interest yeah, from any universities, vets, farriers other professionals that want to know more we are always happy to um yeah just get the knowledge out there and come and and um just give our knowledge out and tell you what we know and there's always something to learn where we go as well so it's always fascinating to meet new people and people in the same field and and see what they do and Yeah, have the exchange, knowledge exchange because I don't believe that anybody ever can know everything. So we're always learning and that's what it's all about, keep learning.
1: Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Lena, I just want to thank you so much for your time today but also for opening our minds and challenging our beliefs around horses because that's what this podcast is all about is working in a different way, taking responsibility, speaking up and um and doing what's right and always putting the horse first so thanks so much for your time today and thanks for everything that you do for horses thank you for
0: having me really enjoyed it
1: if you'd like to get in touch with lena then you can either follow the links in the show notes or you can go to the blog on my website where you'll see photos of lena and her horses it's come i'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message, and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please engage with me somehow. You can leave a review on iTunes or Facebook, share or comment on social media posts, or tell your friends about the podcast. You'll find all the links to our social media on our website. Come We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you'll also find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, just send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone you know who'd love to listen, but isn't quite sure how. I'd love it if you'd get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you'd like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some wonderful people lined up to speak to, but this is your show as much as mine. So please, if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch via the website or social media. A huge thanks to, and I hope I pronounce this right, Sarah E. from the USA, who left this review on iTunes. I mostly listen to political podcasts and audiobooks, but when I saw that Anna Blake was interviewed, I had to listen. And from there, I listened to Andrea Datz, the five best tips so far, Kim Wellness and Emma Bryant. I plan to listen to all the other episodes. I love this podcast. All of the guests share their interesting lives and how they listen to horses, how they communicate and work on relationships with horses. I have learned new concepts and been given a lot of food for thought. I've even experimented with a few of the concepts and have been very happy with my mare's response. Thank you, Tracy. Well, thank you, Sarah. And thank you for being brave enough to have an open mind to let this kind of stuff in. And thank you for taking the time to write that review because it means the world to me. Okay, thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.